Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have our friend of the podcast, Dick Foth, on another session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we're going to jump into our conversation with Coleman Ford on Formed in His Image, the conversation on spiritual disciplines and uh, spiritual formation. Dick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a million, Aaron. Wonderful to be here. Dick, got two questions for you today. Um, You mentioned that in in a time of your life, God spoke to you about one of your challenges um, was that you were afraid to fail. Can you share how you tackled this this fear of failure? Yeah, I, you know, to be afraid to fail, I think is a pretty normal deal. I, I think most human beings don't get up in the morning and say, you know, I just like to fall on my face today. I don't, I don't think many folks do that. But I, <laughs> when I was when I was um, selected or nominated to be president of this small college and, and I was struggling with it and I felt like the Lord sort of directed me to Philippians second chapter where it says in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, so forth and so on. And my, my little conversation with God was essentially, you know, if I think I'm supposed to do this, why am I anxious about this? And he, and he, he essentially, I felt like he essentially uh, nudged me, said, said to me, well, you, you know, you can pastor, but you're not sure you can president. And mm. your problem both is you're afraid to fail. Mm. And then I felt like there was a beat pause and he said, aren't you glad I wasn't afraid wow. to fail? Wow. And so that that idea, uh, I started thinking about that. Not wishing to fail is normal. The opposite of failure is what, or failing is succeeding, right? Sure. So, so the question is, succeed at what? The antidote to being afraid to fail is thinking about what makes for success. And I think it has to do with doing the right things in the right way. Hmm. The primary responsibility, according to our friend Admiral Clark that you've had on here, the primary responsibility of a leader is to define reality. What What is the situation here? Then articulate vision, then hmm. inspire the team. And our other friend, Ashcroft, quoted before here, I, I love his definition of leadership, and it's the opposite of failure. It's this idea of what makes for success. Leaders are people who select noble objectives and pursue them with such intensity and sacrifice that they carry other people with them. Hmm. So uh, that's how I grappled with the thought about being afraid to fail. Yeah, appreciate that, Dick. The other thing I I listened, you had sent me a a, a message or a, a something you shared with one, a group of uh, global workers, we'll call them in another part yeah. of the world. And in that, um, this is one of my, my questions. Uh, so I'm throwing it in here. Uh, you're known as a phenomenal communicator. You've interviewed uh, former presidents you know, all, all the way up and down the levels of importance. Um, but you shared in that, that um, message or that, that what you were sharing with this group of people that you had a, you had overcome a challenge of stuttering. Um, early on in your life. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, Back in the late 1940s, when our family was in India, I went to school at a British boarding school up in the Nilgiri Hills of South India, 
And uh, it, early on, I started stuttering, uh, and maybe it was the pressure. Who who knows what it is? Mostly, uh, the people who mostly stutter or stutter mostly are boys. Like ninety hmm. some percent are boys. Hmm. And so, from age five to age twenty eight ish, in there, I was a stutterer, sometimes severe, had trouble getting going. And one of the responses to that is that, I mean, I don't know why this was. I, I loved memorizing jokes. Looking okay. back, now this is decades later, looking back, I understood that if I memorized a joke, I could act it out and I didn't stutter, right? So then when I was in high school, I got into acting and maybe it was for the same reason. I don't know, you know, who, how do we figure out our own motivations? Sure. But it was the same thing. If, if I knew the lines ahead of time, then I could get into it. And it, it was a mechanical thing. When I was in college, I would go to my room and I'd start reading the newspaper or Time Magazine back in the day or books slowly. I would elongate syllables or, you know, the poetry by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I love? And it, what happens when you stutter is your diaphragm and you, you get tense. Yeah. So if you take a deep breath and exhale, and take two or three seconds for each syllable. Well, later I found out through speech uh, pathologists and therapists that that's a technique that's used, mm. but I didn't know that. And so um, later on, when I actually took a, a public speaking class at Wheaton Grad School, um, I got high marks for the effective use of the dramatic pause. Huh. My, my whole speaking style is I'll rapidly speak for a few moments, then pause, then say a few more things, pause and say a couple of words and pause. And so my speaking style comes out of the challenge with stuttering. Interesting. Very, 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 very interesting. And since 28, you've, it's, you've, it, you've overcome the challenge. Yeah. When I'm tired, sometimes I'll still stutter. Um, but in, I don't know why I was about 28, except that I've been a, a a church planter starting at 24. So when you have to, and back in the day, we did Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. So sure. when you speak three times a week, you figure out ways to do it. Because yeah. if you're a stutterer, <laughs> if you're a stutterer, messages get very long. So you got to uh, figure it out. So. Man, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Uh, Dick, I really appreciate you sharing. That was, like I said, that was one of the questions that I had. And I uh, appreciate you letting me throw it in there. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Coleman Ford on his book, um, Formed in His Image, and just have a phenomenal, insightful conversation with him. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here with a new friend of the podcast, Coleman Ford. Coleman, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's an honor. Coleman, I've got to feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit just by reading your book and um, it's it been valuable. But for those who haven't, uh, will you just share a little bit about yourself and then we're going to jump into some questions on formed in his image. Yeah. So uh, I reside in uh, Texas, North Texas. Uh, we've uh, just gotten out of this crazy heat wave that we've been in. So I'm a little less sweaty, uh, a little cool <laughs> today, kind of feels like fall. Uh, yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, I've been here, grew up here in this area, uh, spent a few years out of state. Uh, but for the most part, this is home. 
married to my wife, Alex, for 15 years now. We celebrated our 15th anniversary this past month. And uh, we have three lovely kids. We call them the Fordlings. Okay. So our eldest, Colette, our uh, middle son, Matthew, and our youngest daughter, Charlotte. So they're a joy. They're fun. A little bit crazy, but that's what about. So, uh, And I get to teach uh, here in Fort Worth at Southwestern Seminary. Been okay. here for about four years now. Uh, teaching uh, an assortment of things. So spiritual formation, which is what the topic of the book is about, has been yeah. a, a topic that I've taught. Uh, but also teach, you know, apologetics, ethics. Uh, they have me teaching visual art right now. Oh. Uh, apparently, I'm the most qualified for that. But uh, okay. <laughs> no, it's fun. I love talking about how to, Christians should think about art and, and the arts. So, wow. yeah, so it's been fun. Uh, I get to do theological training in my backyard. That's what I okay. tell people. Very, very cool. Very, very cool. Well, yeah. it's an honor, honor to have you on today. Christian formation. Uh, is that something, has that been a passion for, uh, of yours for a long time? Can you kind of just share the Genesis story that has led you to write a book to encourage us in our, in our formation? Yeah. So it is a topic that I've thought about uh, for a number of years. It wasn't something that was ever introduced to me growing up. Uh, the term spiritual formation or Christian formation uh, it, depending on, you know, sort of denominationally where you grew up or maybe the tradition, uh, was either a, a, a good word or a good phrase or perhaps taboo. Uh, mm. but either way, uh, really started to sort of gain an, uh, understanding of formation and discipleship when I was uh, a student pastor, uh, overseeing middle school and high school ministry, uh, and reading some books about that. You know, I started seminary and was thinking through that, though I never really had, uh, sort of a aha moment. It was just, kind of a development of seeing how to shape and form these young men and women uh, to love the Lord their God. Uh, and so doing that through lots of different ways, of course, uh, within the church and uh, experiences and some other things, mission trips, other things that would form them and shape their heart around the gospel. Uh, and then really started to come into it in a more uh, sort of academic way, but still kind of pastoral sense of thinking about, okay, what if sort of the centuries prior to now thought about this idea and uh, in, in, in sort of mining this the sort of resource of church history to think through mm -hmm. that. And so started doing that a number of years ago, uh, landed uh, at a place to do a, a doctoral dissertation uh, and was thinking about spirituality and sort of that idea historically and uh, really refined a lot of those thoughts. And then, of course, uh, teaching now, I'm able to teach a course to essentially put my thoughts out there, <laughs> uh, to have said, hey, I've, I've read about this, I've researched this, uh, uh, now I've written on this, of course, uh, and now I can sort of imprint this and have a conversation with students and ministers in training about the art of spiritual formation and how God uh, is shaping us to be more like uh, his, uh, more like the sun. And so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a process, uh, and still, of course, by no means an expert, but, uh, wanted to continue to grow. And, and, and this book is a, is a fruit of that. Yeah. You, you, before we dive in, when you think of Christian formation, um, how do you kind of define that or put riverbanks on it? And then I'd like to mm -hmm. question, I'd ask, like to ask you a question, cause you said it's an art, the art. Mm -hmm. and, and so the art part of it. So let's start off mm -hmm. with Christian formation. Then I'm going to ask you a question about the art of it. That's great. Yeah. So when I think about Christian formation, uh, the definition that I give in the book is something that I, I like to flesh out in teaching and uh, in other environments, it's the idea that we are image bearers of God, which is the biblical concept, of course, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that are called 
by the goodness of God, we're called out of darkness, we're called out of sin uh, into his kingdom, into his family, we're adopted. Uh, of course, unpack that as well. And then we are shaped along the way by the truth of God. The truth of God is the uh, authoritative inerrant scriptures that he's given his church to understand his will and understand his ways. Uh, and then, but that comes out, of course, in different ways, the preaching of his word, the proclamation in different ways of his word, the singing of his word, uh, the, the sort of understanding of his word displayed in communion and baptism and all sorts of ways. And then, uh, so that's the shaping of our hearts. And then it's for the purpose, I would argue, of beholding God in his beauty. Mm. Uh, that is our aim. That is our, uh, the, the Greek word, the telos, the end goal, the purpose of our lives is to behold God in his beauty. And we, we get a sense of that in our, uh, sort of, here and now, uh, as redeemed men and women, we get to a, a picture of that, a little taste of the glory. Uh, but of course, that is our end goal, our end purpose, that we will behold his beauty for eternity. Uh, and Christian theologians and philosophers have talked about this. The scriptures give sort of pictures of this in different places, new heavens, new earth, revelation, gather around the throne. Uh, but when I think about spiritual formation, it, it's for that purpose. It's to, it's to, and, and to bring people along. So missionally, thinking about how do I help other people see the beauty of God more than the beauty of uh, this product <laughs> or this yeah. uh, uh, this worldview or this other philosophy, uh, and that's that's formation, helping us see the beauty of God in our lives and the life to come. Yeah, and you mentioned that it's an art. So how so? Yeah, when we think about spiritual formation, I, I like to think about it in contrast to maybe some other modes of discipleship, Okay, uh, maybe Christian education, which these are not bad words by any means. Don't hear me say this. Uh, but the sort of idea of thinking of formation, discipleship, education as being information-based, that uh, if we, as long as we inject the right data into someone's mind— uh, will get the result of a disciple. Now, information is crucial, right? Good biblical information sure. is absolutely vital uh, for that. But that is not that is not the end all be all uh, of Christian discipleship. Uh, it includes, and this is what our doctrine of sanctification, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, helps us see, is that it includes the ongoing shaping, the ongoing uh, uh, surrendering, uh, the ongoing repentance. Uh, and that looks different for you, Aaron. That looks different for me. Uh, we all have the same general issue, right? Sin <laughs> and playing that out in, in our lives in various ways. Uh, but it's not the same on the ground for, for each of us. And, and so when we think about art, it is a, um, it, it's a way of understanding that we are all unique, complex individuals. Yes, redeemed by the same grace of God, his mercy through the work of Jesus Christ, which is true for every single believer in Christ. But then now that gets applied in specific ways on the ground, meeting our needs uh, day in and day out, uh, depending on who we are. So, that, so that's why I use the word art. It's not something that can be manufactured. It's not a, it's not a spreadsheet as helpful as those sure. are. Uh, it's more of like a canvas, I think, is yeah. the best way to picture that. For sure. And you talk about the idea of beauty, imagination, and and the good life. Um, how, how do you maybe we'll look about those concepts? And when you think of beauty, imagination, and the good life, and and what are some reasons that those three are so important for our Christian faith? Yeah, the idea of goodness, truth, and beauty uh, is a concept that philosophers and specifically Christians have 
understood and unpacked for hundreds, thousands of years, these kind of irreducible qualities of life that we all desire truth. We all desire uh, to be good and to receive good. Uh, and that we all desire beauty. We live for beauty. So if you remember the definition I gave, that that kind of unpacks that a little bit. Uh, and, and philosophers have sort of put that under the umbrella of the good life. Uh, and of course, have defined that in different ways. Uh, the good life is, is being a virtuous person, living according to virtue, according to Aristotle. Uh, or the good life uh, in sort of a modern Western view is sort of an accumulation of uh, of materials, uh, mm. accumulation of power, accumulation of uh, of wealth and finance, um, or it could be the the sort of casting off of those things, right? Sort of a uh, in a more Eastern sort of view, sort of a, yeah. you know you're letting go of material things, right? But and that's the good life. So regardless, there's different visions of the good life, and I would argue, as some recent scholars and helpful biblical uh, uh, experts have mentioned, that that Christ Himself is giving us a picture of the good life. Uh, the blessed life, the happy life, uh, of course, that's found in him, that's found in participating in the kingdom, which he himself, of course, is the head of and inaugurated uh, and calling us into. Uh, and, and so when we think about goodness, truth, and beauty, those things are finding their ultimate meaning and purpose in God. Uh, and those are worth recovering, they're worth keeping in our vernacular, especially for uh, Western evangelicalism, which is the tradition and sort of uh, environment that I've grown up in, uh, we're so easily drawn towards pragmatism. What's going to mm. get people in the door? What's going to get through their butts in the seats, so to yeah. speak, uh, and keep them there? And there's, of course, some helpful conversations to have around evangelism and, and missions and meeting the needs of community. I'm not saying that that's not important. But in my experience, it's always led with the foot of pragmatism. Uh, mm. How do we get people here? How do we grow the thing? How do we keep the lights on, so to speak? Again, some important things to think about there. But I think Christians, at least historically, have more landed on the uh, what's eternal, uh, what's mm. you know. So the ideas of beauty, goodness, and truth, which has led them to do things that are not pragmatic, meaning take a hundred years to build this church uh, in in medieval times, or uh, you know, work through long hours of personal discipline. Uh, and thinking through spirituality as more of just an exchange of goods, but more of a submission uh, of one's whole self to God uh, in prayer. And those things are not pragmatic, uh, but mm. they are good. They are beautiful. Uh, and they speak to something that uh, is a, a, a much weightier anchor of the soul than specifically our, our Western culture can give us today. Yeah, it's a good word. Good word. You, you mentioned that you you were a youth pastor. I think student ministry. You, you mentioned that. Mm -hmm. um, what wisdom and advice do you have, parents? A lot of the parents that are listening in, maybe their kids are missionary kids or third culture kids. They're living in a place where there's not necessarily a formal um, student ministry or youth group, um, but yeah. the parents also have this burden for Christian formation in the home. And as you mentioned, it's not like uh, A plus B plus C equals, you know, it's not an equation. So maybe some encouragement for parents that are wanting to engage in Christian formation, but are just grappling with um, how to do that best. Yeah. Well, there's tons of resources available, which is great. Um, we live in a, a, a resource-rich age, uh, and depending on the availability of whether that's internet or, or smartphone, 
uh, there are some very sort of low-hanging fruit that can be used by parents uh, apart from a youth group or which is a helpful component, no doubt, uh, or, or sort of formal church environment. Uh, one thing that I often recommend and that we do with our children uh, is an app on the smartphone called the New City Catechism. Uh, which was developed by uh, the, the late Tim Keller and sort of a team of people that uh, took uh, some, an older catechism, uh, sort of this instructional uh, sort of uh, material to, uh, and then modified it, modernized it a little bit. Uh, and there's also, there's a children's version. So okay. you just kind of click the child button or whatever it is. Uh, and it's short answer, short question, short answer with a song that goes with it to sort of, uh, solidify that in their mind. Uh, and that's good for the three-year-old. I think that's good for the 13-year-old. Uh, and they could maybe unpack that more. Uh, so there's tons of those resources available. But then I would just argue that uh, the simplest things are what make the most impact. So mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Aaron, but when I grew up, uh, my parents were uh, both working, depending on the season. One of them might have been working more than the other. Um, and sort of family discipleship looked different yeah. Uh, year to year. Yeah. Uh, but what I do remember is that they tried. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I do remember some specific things that they did, some Bible readings and some other activities we did. Uh, and I think that's what uh, motivated me the most uh, mm. uh, or left the, the strongest impression. I, I don't remember, and this is not um, you know, a knock against my parents, but they didn't have any sort of profound nugget of wisdom that I remember. I'm sure they had them and I just wasn't listening to it at the time. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the Shekinah glory of God didn't fall in our living room once yeah. my dad opened up a Bible or my mom sang a song. Uh, but I do remember the experience and the sort of, um, well, the, the regularity of it. Hmm. Uh, and that's what it is when it comes to discipleship. It's normal, hmm. it's mundane, but it's regular and it's faithful. Hmm. Uh, and it's, the, it's what the Lord uses time and time again to sharpen his people uh, and then to instill in families and, and, and uh, individuals the time-tested, strong biblical truths that will maybe not solve every problem that we have, but will give us the main things that we need to remember. We have everything we need yeah. uh, in those things. And so, yeah, again, I would just say uh, open the Bible, yeah. pray, sing a song, uh, yeah. even if the kids are running around the room, which is probably going to happen, even if you know they're uh, getting upset because you know they didn't get to read the story they wanted. I mean, uh, that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, parents should not feel dissuaded hmm. uh, because it doesn't look like it does on Instagram <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> uh, which is not real, right? We understand yeah. that. We have to understand that. Uh, just open the Bible, sing and pray, and then move on, right? Kind of shifting just a little bit. You talk, we're thinking about a culture of people that uh, there's a lot of things pulling for our attention. Um, you talked about social media. We probably live at a faster pace than most cultures have lived. Uh, information's at our fingertips. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, this desire that we have to be um, to be fully consumed by Christ. H- how do we, in a culture that is grappling for our attention, how can we engage in a way that we're walking to be fully consumed by Christ? Is that a fair question? Sure. Uh, not an easy question, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> I'm going to give everyone the straight up answer here. No, I think um, what we what we do need to remember is this. There are things that are around us that are vying for our attention. No doubt. We all understand that, I think. Uh, but sometimes we don't understand sort of the magnetism of some of those things. Uh, and what I've come to increasingly 
uh, understand and sort of come to the conclusion is that things like social media are not neutral. Uh, Mm -hmm. Smart devices are not neutral. Um, What they are, uh, I mean, I think you can do your best to use them in a neutral sort of way. This is a tool, not a toy. It's what we tell our kids a lot. Um, But at the same time, they are they are constructed in such a way to get you to buy things, right? Yeah. They, they get your attention. Um, you know, things pop up on your YouTube feed or you're watching Netflix. And uh, and the thing is, right, they they don't want you to turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't. And, and that's not me being doomsday or sort of like run for the hills. That's just the way the consumeristic mentality works. Like keep watching, keep clicking, keep doing the thing because that's when the revenue comes in. Mm. That's the business model. Uh, and this is not to just uh, single out that space, although that's the space a lot of us are now really used to. And so what we need to think about is uh, th- there are there's no neutral story out there. Everything mm. has, well, everything has with it a worldview, uh, yeah. an answer for what's wrong with us, and how do we fix that, or how what's the solution, what's our end goal. Uh, Christian or non-Christian, religious or non-religious, they all have that same basic framework. And so as Christians, we need to be sharpened enough to see how those things are playing out. What is the the sort of vision of life, of the good life that's being presented to me on my glowing rectangle or whatever it is? Um, and then to maybe not necessarily, uh, you know, bury it or throw it away, but just to say, okay, uh, that is not the best story for me. Uh, that is not the the story that defines me and gives me true identity and helps me see what is good and true and beautiful. There might be elements there that are I can tap into and see and um, you know kind of extract and be helpful, but at the same time, uh, it's not a neutral playing field. And so, uh, I think again, not not to retreat and build up walls, but to simply say, um, Christians should have the most sharpened lens for this. Um, and, and to uh, be more solidified in their in, in our Christian worldview, our understanding of sort of creation, fall, redemption, new creation uh, is sort of the storyline of Scripture. Uh, and then to say, hey, look, I have a place in this story, the story of God. Um, I have an important role to play. I don't have the most important role to play. That's that's God Himself, who's the author. But that doesn't mean I, I'm not important. That doesn't mean I don't have a space here that God has carved out for me to exhibit a facet of his glory to the world, that he made Coleman Ford to, to do these things. And I need to, of course, do that humbly, walk with uh, reverence, uh, fear of the Lord. But uh, for Christians, we are telling people, no, you have a role to play. You are important. You're not the most important. That's what your phone wants you to believe, <laughs> or that's what uh, whatever advertising agency wants you to believe. Right. Um, but it actually gives you the most freedom to know that, hey, by the way, you don't have to be in control of your fate. Mm. Uh, you don't ha- You don't have to be the author of your own story. Mm. Uh, God's already done that. Uh, right. And that's everything from popular social media to popular uh, 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 pop songs is, is portraying that sort of uh, be yourself, write your own story, live your own whatever. Uh, and what does that do? That actually crushes your soul. Hmm. Uh, because someone is always doing it better. Hmm. Someone already has the sort of in on whatever the latest thing is and you missed out. And so now you have to buy the next thing to get there. Um, And that crushes our souls. And what the the story of scripture, the the story that we're calling people into when they enter into discipleship and formation is to say, Jesus is the gentle and lily savior. That when Hmm. we take upon his yoke, 
it is easy. His burden mm. is light, and that is the best thing for us. And so formation buttresses that. It it, it uh, pours into that. It, it sort of shapes and molds that, uh, again, as an art to help this yeah. person, you and I, see where we fit into that story. So, Aaron, I don't know if that answers your question. No, I just no, decided really, to, to get really a little appreci- uh, excited yeah. about that. So. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate your passion um, for, for the subject. You know, we live in a culture today also kind of on that theme of authenticity. And Mm -hmm. and so how does authenticity impact this idea or this concept of spiritual formation? Yeah, I talk about that a lot in the book. And uh, I always want to be careful to say authenticity is not a bad word. It's just now uh, a more confusing word uh, in uh, in our culture today, because, uh, well, I grew up in an era of church sort of leadership, uh, as I was kind of sharpening my own ministry skills where authenticity was a buzzword, right? We want to be authentic in our worship, authentic in our ministry leadership and authentic in our discipleship and small groups or whatever it is. That was a constant buzzword I heard. Um, and that's not bad insofar as you're defining it as sort of being, uh, real with others, understanding the things that you're trying to work through, maybe in confession, repentance, um, or just understanding your place uh, in God's story, as we talked about. But again, the problem is our culture uses authenticity in different ways. And what they mean by authenticity is that you should be free to be yourself, uh, Mm. whatever that means. Uh, Mm. Be yourself in the chosen gender uh, identity you have. Be, be yourself in the chosen lifestyle, uh, whatever that is. And if nothing, uh, or if there's something hindering those expressions, then you need to cast those things off. Uh, you need to advocate for this in your government or whatever the case is. I mean, whatever the, the steps are to do that, it's because you're trying to be a, the most authentic person you can be. The problem, again, with that is uh, you are defining authenticity based on a cultural norm, a subjective norm, which, in my opinion, leads to, um, well, it, it can lead to a couple things. Narcissism, <laughs> right? <laughs> I am the most I am the most authentic person there ever is, uh, and I'm. it's all about me. Uh, and this idea of elitism, that there's sort of this group of people out there that are the most authentic uh, and of course, they're getting paid lots of money to post these things and to be this certain way. Uh, but it gives the impression that somehow they've arrived or figured this out. And, uh, and and that's that's damaging again to our soul. And so authenticity in our culture's perspective is, again, about this sort of self-focused, self-actualization. Because all they have is to look inside and find meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians are not against authenticity. But what is our our authenticity is we look inside in order to look up. Right. Hmm. We look inside to see, oh, wow, I messed hmm. up. Yeah, I'm chaotic in my soul. And maybe yeah, I am dealing with some of these issues. But who's going to give me the most meaning? Who's going to give me the identity I need? It's God. Right. And I think about uh, Augustine of Hippo in the in the fourth and fifth century when he's writing his very famous work, Confessions. It's very much sort of looking inside his soul, trying to figure these things out. But he puts all of those things in perspective of God's grace and mercy in his life. Uh, and so when we think about becoming an authentic person in Christian perspective, we can be an authentic person, but the authenticity comes in Christ. So you and I are our true self in Christ. Mm. Um, we're not a true self apart from or, or, or because we constructed some identity or we somehow hobbled together this uh, 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 image of ourselves. No, we are the true self because of Christ in us. 
Uh, and we're not called to be an exact replica of each other. That's not discipleship. Again, art form is what I'm talking about here. Uh, we're called to be uh, the true self in Christ as Coleman Ford. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so um, that's maybe bucking against some uh, uh, even Christian culture that might uh, say otherwise, but but I think it's absolutely true, and that's exactly what God uh, is is after in, in glorifying himself, is bringing to life these individuals and, of course, this collection of individuals and his people to say, look at what I've done, right? This yeah. is me speaking as God, right? Yeah. Uh, but like, look at what I've done. Like, this is a, this is a, a picture of my glory, a picture of my creative genius, um, not robots that just look like Jesus uh, that may sound spiritual. That's actually not what, what God is after. Hmm. One of the other things you you challenged me with was the idea that we need to fill our, our time more with solitude than strategic mm. planning. Um, mm. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah. Uh, so I probably gave uh, a lot of our Christian leadership uh, listeners heartache and heartburn with that <laughs> <laughs> comment. Uh, and uh, but what I need to say is a lot of our strategic planning would be much more benefited by times of silence and solitude. Uh, I think a pastor, I'm, I'm thinking of, of kind of the, the lead pastor here. It could be anyone in a, in a leadership position, of course. Um, a lot of times we get caught up in the frenetic activity of vision casting and planning out things. And we bring in consultants and we kind of assess these things. And there's a place for that, no doubt. But what happens in a lot of those situations, at least in my experience and kind of observing uh, the, the the culture is that the pastor leader loses their soul in the process. Uh, I'm not saying salvation is, is on the line or something like that. Uh, I'm just saying that they begin to find their identity in the next vision um, hmm. or the next building program or the next hmm. ministry uh, launch or something like this. Uh, that needs to be a part of the equation for some people, but uh, all leaders, uh, especially Christian leaders and pastors, uh, need to be very serious about attending to their soul. And we cannot attend to our soul apart from silence and solitude. Uh, you may think that that's a radical statement, but when we fill our lives with noise, what gets drowned out is usually what's inside. Um, hmm. We could have good things like listening to this podcast, great thing, right? To be, to be benefiting from sure. and to learning from people, but then to turn it off for 30 minutes and to think, okay, Lord, how do I need to assess this? How do I need to take this in? What are some things in my own life where, you know, speaking to the topic of this podcast, that that I need further uh, sharpening and formation? Uh, maybe I just need to sit and confess. Um, we all do, right, depending on the issue. But just uh, to have time where we're just as best as we can, it might not be perfect, but to to recluse ourselves, uh, recluse ourselves and, and sort of say, uh, I'm going to be with the Lord right yeah. now. Uh, and there's nothing mystical about that. Of course, there's people who have kind of taken that in certain directions. All that is is saying, um, when I shut down the phone and turn off the computer or whatever the case is, I'm now left with myself and the Lord, maybe an open Bible, a prayerful heart for sure. Uh, but it does wonders to sharpen one's soul in light of who God is. Yeah. And so you've done, you mentioned you've done research and obviously you're, you're a doc, you have your doctorate and you're a professor. Is this idea of solitude and, um, and, and, and being this time of solitude, has that been a struggle throughout the centuries or is that a modern struggle? 
Um, any thoughts on that? Um, it's, it's definitely a modern struggle. And I would say uh, because of modern things that have happened, but it's by no means unique to our age. Okay. Um, you know, what I, what I think is helpful to remember is that there are certain individuals, and I don't necessarily agree with, uh, uh, or I don't advocate for a monastic spirituality. I'm not saying that there might not be people who, who thrive in that. Uh, that's not my tradition. That's not my background. Uh, and I'm not necessarily going to say that that's what people need to do. Uh, but there is a reason, uh, is what I'm trying to say. There is a reason that for hundreds of years, that's the way that people went if they wanted to sort of gain a, a higher spiritual practice, um, hmm. going into monastic vocation, uh, whether it's a, a men, uh, men or women, uh, and to sort of escape the busyness of normal life, which would have included, you know, manual labor and some other things, perhaps depending on your station in life. Um, so it's not that somehow, uh, this is a new thing. What is new now is the, uh, sort of accessibility of things that drown out. Uh, or, or, or preclude silence mm. and solitude. I mean, we live in the most, the noisiest culture that there ever has been. Mm. Uh, and and I, and I mean that in lots of different levels, uh, sort mm. of like just physical noise. Now we have cars racing down streets and airplanes and stuff like that. And that's just reality of living in a modern world. But we also have, of course, the digital noise. And yeah. it doesn't have to be something that's coming at you in your ears. It can be just sitting and reading and scrolling for hours. That's noise too. Uh, hmm. and even if you're reading good things, if you're, if that's, uh, if you're just doing that repetitively, uh, without sort of decompressing and stepping back, then again, you're just filling your life with noise where it, it would be more beneficial for you just to have that time as we talked about with silence and solitude. So yeah, it's certainly not a, a new thing, but it's, it has a lot more challenges in a modern day, uh, in my opinion, to accomplish. When it comes to humility and spiritual formation, what's the what is some what is the importance of humility as we walk in this? Uh, and and you share that it's a central it's it's of central importance. Humility is not just some outlier you know that you can choose, um, but it has a central role and importance when it comes to spiritual formation. Could you share some more mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, I, um, I I write on humility not because I'm a master of it. My goodness. <laughs> Of course not. Uh, and no one should preclude to. I mean, I think of uh, a 12th century uh, famous monastic writer by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, he wrote uh, one of his first writings was is called On the Steps of Pride and Humility. And he basically, the whole thing is about how to become more prideful. And you think like, what, what's that about? Well, the reason <laughs> he wrote it that way is because he said, this is actually all I know. I just know mm. how to be prideful. Uh, and then if you're reading it, you can discern, okay, if I don't do those things, right. then I'll become more humble is kind of his right. point. Um, and so when we think about humility, uh, we are you know, similar to the conversation we just had. We are in an environment, a culture, uh, which prizes um, uh, accomplishment, uh, busyness, mm -hmm. uh, other things that we would kind of add to our resume or sort of our, uh, you know, kind of panoply of, uh, of accomplishments that we've, that we've accumulated and, um, and not saying that someone can't be humble and accomplished. That's not what I'm saying, right. but our culture lends itself to denying humility, right? Mm -hmm. So be the best you can be, uh, sort of, uh, be, you know, on top, climb the ladder, whatever the analogy or the image is, uh, and it, and it, 
absolutely precludes humility. And, and, and historically, philosophically, uh, humility was not a virtue to, to strive for. Like, like a Greco-Roman idea of virtue is uh, honor, yeah. pride, right? And, 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 you know, there would be some sort of like similarities of things we would say like justice and temperance and wisdom, but uh, virtue uh, and humility did not go together. Okay. But what do we see in Christ? The, 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 the virtue that's exhibited the most is humility, right? Mm. Paul in Philippians 2, famous sort of hymnic passage, right? Mm. Christ took on our nature, right? He, he, he uh, uh, counted equality with God as something not to be exploited or grasped, but uh, humbled himself is, is yeah. the words. Uh, and we see, of course, in the gospel uh, where he is uh, constantly showing his humble spirit. That doesn't mean he's getting steamrolled by any means, yeah. right? He's, he's, he's very much in control <laughs> and very much knows what he's doing, but he's exhibiting, well, this is what his kingdom is going to be like, right? Mm. Uh, you know, reading the Sermon on the Mount, you get an, a sort of an upside down picture of mm. what virtue in the kingdom is, is to be like, right? A blessed are, or happy are, what? The meek. And that's that's not Aristotle, right? Or that's not Cicero or, or whoever. Uh, that's that's unique to Jesus in the revelation of Scripture. Uh, mm. Blessed are the peacemakers, and so on and so forth. And so, uh, when we think about humility, it has to be. I think it must be the sort of uh, operational virtue in the Christian life. Um, I don't know about you, but a lot of times in ministry training and settings, um, it. Uh, accomplishment and, and ambition was kind mm. of the thing that was put before me. Yeah. Uh, and there's this idea of holy ambition. I get that. I'm not trying to go too far with that, but often the idea of humility, being a humble leader uh, was just not part of the conversation. Uh, especially if we're in spaces like even this, where we often sort of throw out the credentials of people and say, okay, they have this ministry or they've written these things uh, and, and none of us are saying, therefore, this person's not a humble person, but we a lot of times lean on those things. Uh, and it can sort of work its way into our heart where I can say, yeah, I am a doctor of this, right? Or I, I have written this book, like, wow, look at me. Yeah. Um, when the whole time uh, the Spirit is is calling me to humble myself in the way that Christ humbled himself, to yeah. serve and not be served. And so when we think about formation, it has to be uh, an ongoing uh, exercise in humility, growing in humility. Uh, and that's actually what's best for us. That's yeah. actually what's most freeing for us uh, when we do that. That's a good word. And that kind of leads me to my, my next question about friendships. And, you know, I, I've found that uh, titles, degrees, those things, and uh, titles don't, they normally divide people. They don't unite, you know? So if you walk into a room and say, well, this is who I am. And, this, and that's the cultural value of promoting that. But then you wonder, yeah. like with the authenticity side of it, we want to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And really, I'm not, yes, I have my doctorate, but that's not who I am, right? My authentic mm -hmm. self is not the, the education. It, it, it's who's Christ, who I am in Christ. But anyway, mm -hmm. as you were just talking yeah. about that, it it made me think it's just an interesting cultural juxtaposition where we have a value of authenticity, but we want humility and how they mm -hmm. seem to – they don't compete, but there is a, a, a certain level of friction there. Uh, yeah. And in and a, and a society, you know, we, I think it's another common thing is this idea that we're probably more connected than ever, but we're lonelier than ever. When it mm -hmm. comes to spiritual formation, um, how, do, how do friendships – how do we walk – 
how do we have intentional conversations in our friendships and that help us in our spiritual formation and help us draw draw closer to Christ? Yeah, Aaron, I love that conversation. And uh, that's a, a big part of what I want to sort of uh, help people extract out of my book is this idea and this need for friendship. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, historically very important conversation, although uh, in the past few decades, it's kind of lost its meaning uh, or sort of lost the importance in, in why it matters uh, for various reasons. And I'm so excited to see that there is a sort of resurgence in conversations around friendship, uh, specifically from a Christian perspective, although non-Christians are, are talking about this as well, because of our culture, because of sort of the innate design of our culture to sort of be your own person, be the captain of your soul. Uh, and people can help you with that, but they're sort of add-ons to that. They're tangential to that. They, they might help you become your true self, but after that, okay, I'm done with you. Um, uh, and no one, not, well, that does happen very explicitly sometimes, but uh, a lot of times it's more of an internal mm. uh, reality that people wrestle with. But for Christians, um, uh, we have, I would say, the, the market uh, cornered on friendship, or we should have the market cornered on friendship. Why? Well, because the idea of friendship is inherent in our gospel message, uh, mm. that God has befriended us in Christ, that we were at one point friends with God in the garden uh, prior to, to the fall. Uh, walking with God, I mean, all the images that we see in the first couple chapters of uh, of Genesis are are friendship images, right? Intimate relationship with God and one another, walking with Him, talking with Him, uh, just having casual. You think about it, just having casual relationship with God. Hey, hey God, good yeah. to see you again. You know, like uh, though it doesn't say that obviously, but that's a spirit of kind of what's being portrayed there. And uh, and then historically, right? Christians have. Um, just by nature of the community, Acts 2, early church, you see very uh, tight relational uh, uh, framework there, selling their goods, caring for one another. And of course, there's uh, all sorts of things going on there historically and exegetically. But it, what we extract from that is, my goodness, Christians need to be like friends, right? Yeah. We need to be close with one another. <laughs> we need to be thinking about one another. Uh, the New Testament, Paul and others they, they they give us all these one another commands that don't make any sense apart from true Christian community uh, and 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 friendship. I would say, uh, and there's 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 friendship language in the scriptures, but uh, but it's not until recently uh, that that's kind of been unpacked biblically and theologically. And so when I think about spiritual formation, um, I, I want to help us remember, and it's not necessarily a new insight, but help us remember that it's not a solo project. Hmm. It is something that we do in community with other people. And even just community uh, is, is a good thing, but it can also be kind of a buzzword too, right? Yeah. Like we're in community. Well, yes, but then we also need the closer group of people who are helping us sharpen, we're sharpening one another. That's of course a biblical image from the, the Proverbs um, to be more like Christ, uh, the Spirit is using you and me as, as in relationship with one another uh, to point out our, our weaknesses, our, our gaps, and our flaws. Uh, and it might hurt; it might be uncomfortable sometimes, but that's what friendship is. It, it's doing those things, and uh, it's kind of uh, what what the Proverbs would say: the honeyed sword, you know, sword yeah. with a honey with honey on it. Right? We're going to feel that hurt, but it's going to be sweet. 
Yeah. The, the, the point is it's it's for our good. Hmm. And so uh, when I think about fris- friendship, Christians, again, need to have this market cornered. Uh, but again, back to some original conversation we have, the idea of pragmatism and other things sometimes diminishes friendship to where it's just, okay, we just got to confess for 30 minutes, uh, pray together, read, a, memorize the scripture and move on hmm. rather than that long relationship where they're going to have some weeks where there's just like crickets and other weeks where it's just intense. But either way, that's what friendship is. It's, it's normal life on life um, uh, reality. And for Christians, it's to what help us grow in Christ-like virtue, help us to be more like Christ with our gaze directed mutually, uh, not on one another, not on the stuff that we like necessarily, although that's fine to talk about, but fixing our gaze on the beauty of God together. Right. So when Christians think about friendship, I think that's what they need to do. Yeah. Good word. Coleman, it has been an honor to spend some time with you. Uh, my evening, your daytime. Uh, will yeah. you pray for us? Um, it's uh, that God will use the wisdom and insight you've shared. That we'll put these, these things into action. It won't just be yeah. head knowledge. Um, but it'll be something that we'll, we'll ponder, we'll consider, um, and then we'll put into action. Will you pray for us? I would love that. Thank you. Most Holy God, I thank you for this time, this conversation that we've had. I pray that it would be fruitful for those who are listening. Uh, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to those who are thinking through those things. And uh, pray that uh, you would help all of us to be more um, humble, as we've talked about. Uh, We would trust you, uh, that your work in our lives is good, uh, that we could commit day in and day out uh, to simply be faithful in the ordinary things. Uh, and wherever we are across the world and uh, in whatever vocation we have, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our role as ambassadors for Christ, that we are called to give uh, an account of the hope that we have within us, uh, not obviously perfectly, uh, but faithfully uh, and uh, according to your will and your word, that we would do that more faithfully uh, and, and more readily wherever we are. I thank you for this time. I pray for the listeners. Pray for uh, your um, your good gospel to be shaping us, molding us, so that we would be faithful witnesses to a world in need of your grace and mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 